Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we have Greg back. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Hey guys, thanks for having me again. And we brought Greg on because we kind of have an interesting idea for this uh, podcast. So normally we always pick movies and then pick moments from them based on whatever topic we're doing. But this week we are assigning movies to each other. So we're calling it our film club podcast. So yeah, we found movies that the other person hasn't seen that we think they would like. Yes. (laughs) That we think (laughs) they would like is the key thing. So Dan wasn't like going to assign me some Cronenberg grossness or something. I'm surprised. First of all, I kind of had two thoughts going into this episode. One, I'm surprised you would want to do it given your track record of watching movies that I bring up on the show has not been great uh, in terms of your enjoyment levels. And uh, to the point that it's frankly like a a comedy at this point. Um, But I think the reason is because you have made it very nobly a mission to see everything that gets brought up on the show. You haven't seen everything yet, but movies that are talked about. Yeah. You, you, you seek them out though. If they're available to you, you watch them really, uh, uh, committed to the show and i'm not i'm deeply lazy and i'm pretty self-absorbed so people bring up movies on the show that i haven't seen i'm like cool and i just go back to you know rewatching batman the animated series and not expanding so with this episode you're like i ha- he has to watch movies that he hasn't seen now we're gonna make him do it <laughs> that's right um so no, wait, i didn't fair know enough. I didn't know Ian didn't like these movies. Like I recommended Rocky five on the previous episode solely because <laughs> I thought Ian would be all about that. You know, the rich character arc. And then... I mean, he's got to watch <laughs> it. Eventually. it. Oh, you did. Watch I did. It. I did watch, didn't it. watch Rocky's two through four. I know it's kind of weird. That's what makes it so incredible. <laughs> I remember him. I remember seeing Loggett on a letterbox. I think he gave it one and a half stars. Something close to that, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like you don't fully appreciate Rocky. I mean, not that there's much to appreciate. It's terrible, but sorry, Greg. <laughs> but if you like, it's you need to see how far they've come because it's kind of like the Friday no, the 13th remake. It. No, it's, you it. don't get it. It's kind of like the Friday the 13th remake where it's like, <laughs> this is a straightforward Friday the 13th. They're in the woods. Jason shows up. They even streamline like the first three movies into one of terms of like, he's got the bag head and then he's got the hockey mask and he's killing teenagers because they have sex and you know, it's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's just fine. But the last movie he was in space before that, he went to hell. He went to Manhattan. Like we've been to all these, these great places coming home. The bed's too small now. And that's Rocky five. Like, yeah, he's back on the streets. He's wearing his old jacket. He's poor again. But like he he won the Cold War, the last movie. And without that context, I feel like Rocky five doesn't hit the way it's supposed to. Yeah, and Ian, when um when Daniel says go into space and go into Manhattan, he was talking about Jason. He wasn't talking about Rocky. I'm well, aware. Be, well, no, but Rocky, I mean, clearly there's some NASA adjacent material going on because he he, he can afford a robot for his brother-in-law and this is like 40 years ago and he's got a functioning robot it can sing it can perform chores i can't believe i went into rocky five without all that i i mean i can't believe it either but those are the choices you choose to make i should have recommended you rocky too 
Oh, well. Have you only seen I one in five? No, I've seen four. Oh, okay. All I've right. Seen four. Okay, you have seen, at least you've seen like the pinnacle. There's a there. little bit of mortar there. Okay, just a bit. But still, you're missing a lot of context, which is, to me, makes yeah. it incredible. Yeah. It's yeah, like my sure. dad. My dad, when the uh, when the Avengers movies were coming out and Infinity War was all the rage, he said, oh, you know, uh, my my nephew, he said, uh, Greg, your nephew, my grandson, he wants to go see this Avengers movie and I kind of want to take him. What should I watch beforehand? And I'm like, you got to watch like 20 movies. <laughs> what? Oh, no, no, it was Endgame. He wanted to watch Endgame and he'd heard about Infinity War and he's like, well, I, I'm just going to watch Infinity War. Or this other one, it's on TV. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Do it. Do it. <laughs> And he watched Infinity War by himself without having seen one Marvel movie. That's and, uh, having having text messages. What? What? I thought is who's Robert Downey Jr. Is he a bad guy or a good guy? And like, <laughs> got three hours of this big guy. Amazing. <laughs> That's good. Part of me kind of wants to know what that experience would be like, but you do with End of Evangelion. That's, right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I did do that. That's right. Which is another one of I my forgot. classic. Dan brought it up on the show. Ian watched it and hated it. I mean, you kind of set yourself up so for failure confused. on that one, but. That's okay. Someone had to do it. I mean, Someone I'm had not. to know what that it was like. For science, it was, it was, uh, it was I kind of like when the show ends, that'll be our big contribution as we <laughs> did the case study of like, what if someone who has never seen an episode of the show uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion and doesn't really watch anime to begin with just goes in blind into end of what does That's that do to happens. the brain <laughs> broke it mm -hmm. hold on yeah. I also apply to this because I have not seen the show I have heard of it but maybe one day I will try this as well you should I'm writing it down it's beautifully animated which is the main reason I think Ian's like one star review is too too harsh. Like if nothing else, it's it looks really nice. Actually, I think this is the best topic you guys have picked for this podcast. Now that we've had this discussion, uh, I can't wait to see where this goes. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, well, I will say just before we stop or start getting into it, uh, Greg, you're. Um, you actually like run a film club that we're in a part of. So that's thought that would be cool to bring you on. Yeah. And I, I kind of inherited it, but um, that's what sort of made me think, well, I'll save it for the actual gist of our podcast, but um, yeah, I've recommended movies to you guys before and uh, it's been getting a little harder as we all get older and more wise and we've seen more things, but uh Hopefully some of the things, at least that I picked for you guys have stuck a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were able to find, I think pretty easily this for this topic, for this episode stuff we hadn't seen at times narrowing it down to actually get our hands on the movies could have been, could, had been tricky at points, but I think we yeah, got a good the one that like, I had for Greg or that Greg recommended to me came yesterday afternoon. So I just watched it last night. You know, if you have it on Blu-ray like I do, you could have just uh, taken it off the shelf and had yourself a great time. But then I would have seen it already. Yeah, well, that's your fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, should we should we get into it then? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we're starting off with the movie that I recommended for Ian, which, as we've discussed, Ian has watched a lot of like bleak, sad gross and miserable movies on my account that i have uh, 
Uh, if anyone is following him on Letterboxd, will note lately his one-star review for Crimes of the Future, which again, is because I talked about it on the show, and uh, I honestly don't mean to choose things that will make you sad, but I want to talk about them, and then a byproduct of it is you get caught in the crossfire. When you get to Pink Flamingos, I'm just, I'm sorry in advance. Uh, but for this, it's like, okay, I'm giving Ian something, and I don't remember what I initially had given you, but it was something that was more of like a a movie I think you would have liked, whatever it was going to be. It was, uh, it was like, Sweet Smell of Success. Sweet Smell of Success, which is a great movie, and I genuinely think you'd really like it, especially as like a social network fan, because it's got a similar like cutthroat dialogue. I did like it, because I also just watched that one. Oh, sweet. Um, <laughs> but I was also like, it's pretty dark, and it's pretty heavy. And even though this is one I think you'd like, I think you also owe a break. You're owed a break from me. <laughs> so instead, I recommended the uh, exploitation spoof comedy Black Dynamite from 2009. One, because I just rewatched it and found it still hysterically funny, um, which was nice because I hadn't seen it since I was like 14. I'm like, oh, God, I hope it holds up. Um, but also because I know you're a big fan of like the Zucker Abrams Zucker comedies um, and while this film isn't like the same, it's playing in a similar enough milieu that I thought this might appeal to you as well. And, uh, it's one of the few times I can offer you a comedy and maybe brighten your day instead of making you feel like, uh, <laughs> you live in a, in a sewage pit. So, so I recommended black dynamite. Excellent. Yeah, it was a, it was a good pick. I, Sometimes these spoof movies can go really bad. Like they can have basically one joke that they just beat over and over and over again. Um, but this one was pretty awesome. I think they kept uh, kept things fresh and kept things going. And they were um, spoofing the black exploitation movies, which I'm not that well versed in, but I know enough that, you know, it was funny. <laughs> it was really good. Um, and so as I was watching the movie, there was there was a few particular gags that really stood out to me. One was like the really on the nose background songs that they'd always be playing. It'd be like, <laughs> "My brother died of an overdose," or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and the lyrics are just saying exactly what's happening in the movie. That was really good. But then, so the whole the whole idea is that there's like this new drug on the street or something that they're, they're trying to, I can't remember exactly the plot details. They're not that important, but there's like a, there's some kind of secret operation going on by the man, which they always just call the man um, that has something to do with this uh, code Kansas is the code name of this secret project and so the whole time it's like what is this and they're trying to figure out what it is and then they get to a scene where they're kind of just black dynamite and his crew that he's been gathering throughout the movie um, they're just sitting around this this bar and just talking about things and then somebody mentions something and a light bulb switch on and they start figuring out what code Kansas means and when they got to this scene, I was just killing myself laughing. <laughs> it is the most convolu convoluted way to get from point A to point B that I've ever seen. So they're sitting around talking and suddenly they're talking about like waffles or something. And the one character says, yeah, they're so good. They melt in your mouth. And all of a sudden Black Dynamite's like, wait a minute. What did you say? I said that they melt in your mouth. Wait a minute. What else mountains in your mouth? Like M&Ms. 
yes <laughs> and not in your hand and then they start going off on this whole thing where m&ms leads to the mars company which leads to aries the god of war and they keep like going on and on and on and eventually they get to what code kansas means and i was just killing myself because it's you always get to see those scenes where it's like a light bulb somebody says something in it trigger something in someone's mind in these kinds of movies and in like cop movies or detective movies and suddenly they've made a leap from point a to point b but when they were doing this it was the leaps of logic they were making was so funny i was yeah i was in hysterics <laughs> awesome uh i love this scene too because it's the eventual like payoff gag i won't spoil but yeah. the, the product it involves is shown like right at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. So it, it hits this kind of almost Bill and Ted-esque balance where it's like it's very convoluted and kind of stupid, but it's also genuinely kind of clever too. Like when they yeah. finally get to the reveal, it's like, oh, that's not just nonsense. That actually is something that bizarrely the film has set up and the payoff does make logical sense. They just took the silliest and funniest road to get there. Um which is pretty great. Oh, I'm so glad you liked this. <laughs> and one of the best parts was um, when they're talking about, they mentioned Athens is in Greece and Greece created the astrological system in, and then everybody at the same time says 785 <laughs> BC. <laughs> oh, it was good. Yeah, it's a great scene. Oh, awesome. Because uh, I was a bit worried. I'm like, this is a little bit more like, vulgar than the zucker abrams zucker comedies especially at some points well it's um, gotta be it's yeah it makes true. sense um no black dynamite really is one of my favorite comedies of the past of the 2000s probably like it's so clever uh ian you and i had a episode a while back on comedies i don't think daniel was on that one no it was just you and me but there's um, nothing funny in my life no no except black dynamite <laughs> yeah except that that's the one comedy i like but um, yeah, like we talked about on that podcast episode, how there's so many different degrees of comedy and how hard it is to make a successful comedy movie or a comedy scene. It just it's so difficult and so many movies fail and so many projects, movies, TV shows are actually brought down because of poorly written comedy like just that they feel they have to inject somehow like look at star wars you know but um but when you hit it and get it right and it's written well and it's it delivered well like it is in black dynamite like it's it can be so good and it has it can really have like a broad appeal to it as well because there there are a lot of sort of different styles of comedy fan in black dynamite they've got like slapstick they've got really sharp dialogue in there too it's and uh yeah. and any of us could pick wall breaking, right? Like each of us could pick like our top three moments of the movie and they very well could all be different. So there's, there's a lot of really good things in a uh, black diamond. I'm only disappointed that I never recommended it to you earlier. Just like when I saw that Daniel reviewed sweet smell of success, I'm like, have I never talked to him about that movie? Damn it. <laughs> so funny enough, I had seen sweet smell of success before, but I was very, I liked it, but I, I read back, not to immediately diverge, but I, I read my old review and I think I said something like, oh, the story's a bit stock. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not stock at all. It's such a unique and specific plot that's like only this movie uses. But um, 
in any event, with uh, Black Dynamite 2, I think the scene gets to something that's really great about the film is that even though it's silly, Black Dynamite, the character, is genuinely, like, awesome. He really is the ultimate wish-fulfillment hero. Like, he is in immaculately good shape. He looks cool. He's funny. He, he's well-dressed. And some of that is played up for comedy. Um, but it's also not, like, a joke that he he really is that awesome. You compare it to the Rudy Ray Moore films, which were actually made in the classic exploitation period in the 70s, like Dolomite, where it's a similar um, sort of macho black man power fantasy of like this ass kicking dude on the streets who's bringing justice and taking it to the man. But part of the joke is that one, the filmmaking is pretty incompetent, but two, Rudy Ray Moore is not shaft. He is not like a handsome, cool, suave guy. He's like this, he's got a paunch. He's a little, he's not unattractive, but he doesn't have like classically handsome features. His fight scenes are awkward and terrible. And that's part of the joke. And that's really, that works perfectly fine. But in Black Dynamite, it's almost funnier that he really is like this absurd ass kicker. Like all the Kung Fu stuff is great. Um, and this scene is a good example of that because, yeah, it's funny and how convoluted and silly it is. But it's also funny because like they are solving the mystery and it's working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, even his mom calls him Black Dynamite when he was a kid. That's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah. The very first time you see him on camera. He's in bed with like five women. Yes. That that <laughs> intro is like, if we ever do another intro episode, that's what I would talk about where it's just like, because of the filming of it, where it's like the shot of him thrusting and then the reaction shot of multiple women all reacting as if they're all the one he's having sex with. It's <laughs> it's perfect. It's so funny and it's so perfectly pokes at the absurdity of these kinds of power fantasies while also kind of reveling in how awesome they are too. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a good time. It good also time has the with line, the orphans don't have parents, which is hilarious. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we could just spend like an hour just listing all of our favorite lines. Just the kids like, my mom said my dad was black named Black Dynamite. Yeah, my mom said that too. Uh, hush up, children. A lot of cats have that name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. that was good. Yeah, good. A good pick, Dan. I'm glad that you pick. liked it because uh, I'm I'm sure I'll never pick anything fun or funny for the show again. <laughs> never. Or Neon Genesis. There are more movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we'll keep the comedy train going. And I'm I'm a little I'm curious of what Greg actually thought about this movie. So I recommended one to Greg called The Wrong Guy, which is kind of a 90s comedy movie from uh, one of the guys in the kids in the hall whose name is escaping me now. Why can't I think Dave of his Foley? Name? Yeah, yeah, Dave Foley. Um, which I was, it was recommended to me by somebody a long time ago. And I'm like, well, that sounds stupid. I don't want to watch it. And then I watched it and I was like, okay, I actually, it is stupid, but I like it. So I'm hoping, Greg, that you liked it too. <laughs> well, first, you recommended this to me a little while ago. And uh, I thought for a split second, it was The Wrong Man with Henry Fonda. And so oh. I kind of, I just passed by it. And he said, no, 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 this is a different thing. And so when he recommended it to me again, uh, I'll just tell you my brief uh, history with this. When he recommended it to me again, um, I thought, okay, I've never heard of this. And I usually don't try to do this. I don't know if you guys do this or not, but I try to like avoid letterboxed reviews or IMDB ratings, probably watch something that I don't really yeah, know I about too. just because I don't really want it to influence me. 
but uh, Curiosity got the better of me, and I looked it up on IMDb, just see who was in it, and I saw, like, okay, it's from the 90s. It's got, like, a six-point-something. Oh, boy. And as someone who grew up in the 90s, there were there were a lot of crappy comedies, and then <laughs> this was really giving off, like, almost, like, Blue Streak vibes. Like, is this just going to be some something that is going to annoy me and there's a reason I passed by it. But then I just thought, Oh, like you said, Ian, Oh wait, the kids in the hall guys did this. Hmm. Interesting. And you know, they are Canadian. No, and you are. Guys are Canadian. Do you know the kids in the hall? <laughs> yeah. They just live down the street. That's awesome. I, I knew that there was a reason you recommended it. No, but, um, I know them from my dad being like, this was our SNL. I'm like, okay, dad, back to bed. Who <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> let you out? But um, <laughs> but no, I watched it and um, and so, okay, I'll just come out with it. I really liked it. I thought it was really funny. Okay, good. <laughs> and, I was kind of getting worried there. And because it was, uh, it is just like a, a straight, not a straight spoof of Hitchcock, but uh, like I said, there are a few different styles of comedy in there, but it really does use Hitchcock as its uh, as its bones. And uh, the movie itself is about a guy. And what, what I was saying earlier, Daniel, um, I keep wanting to say Mick Foley. It's not Mick Foley. It's Dave Foley. <laughs> not Mick. So if I say Mick Foley, just assume I mean Dave Foley. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on Daniel's podcast. It's uh, and I know you like wrestling. No, I grew up with mankind, but um. I don't know if you've seen the wrong guy, uh, Daniel, but basically what the movie's about is like this isn't spoil anything, but the first five minutes or first ten minutes are Dave Foley is working at this company. He's this high executive, and he's expecting to get promotion to uh, to like run the company, and he doesn't get it, and he has this huge meltdown in the boardroom, and he goes to confront the CEO, and as he barges into the office, he sees that the CEO is has been murdered. And he very awkwardly tries to help him by pulling the knife out and blood gets everywhere. And then he thinks, oh, everyone is going to think that I killed him. And he runs away and he runs out of the building. And so you think as a viewer, OK, it's a comedy, but it's about this guy proving his innocence. The thing is, though, there's security cameras all over the office and they establish immediately that the police know that he did not kill him. They have the entire murder on camera. <laughs> and so Dave Foley is on the run the entire movie. Although he is not on the run, no one is looking for him. <laughs> Nobody is pursuing him. However, he thinks that he is the prime suspect. And and everywhere he goes, he's like on the lam. Like there's a there's a, a scene of him or a shot of him like taking his ID and credit cards, like throwing him in the trash so he can't be traced. Like all of this is useless. And uh and, That's and a great, it's such a great premise for a comedy. <laughs> Right. And, and, but there are a, a lot of tropes that are used in some of these, uh, especially Hitchcock movies, uh, that they really do spoof. And like at the very end, uh, they're at a miniature golf course and there there's this little Statue of Liberty set up and it's only like five feet off the ground. But they're like fighting in this fake Statue of Liberty. I think that's Sab Saboteur or Sabotage? One of them. He's got two movies that are Saboteur. Saboteur. Sabotage and... is the one where a child is blown up. <laughs> you haven't seen that. Oh They're God. on a streetcar with a bomb and then the bomb explodes and the kid dies. And I'm wow. laughing about it, but it's very harrowing in the film. Well, we're talking about comedy. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but um, I, I had a couple of couple of 
scenes to pick from. And just this morning, I think I'm going to revert back to this. I don't know if you guys have picked, I know you've had an intros episode, but I think that for me, the one thing that sort of stands out is, and you would catch this Daniel immediately if you watch the movie, but the very opening sequence is this very Saul Bass-esque uh, title. And for people who are listening, you don't know, like Saul Bass was a graphic designer in sort of the golden age of Hollywood. And he designed a lot of, a lot of title sequences for Hitchcock movies and other movies like anatomy of a murder, I think is a really popular one he did. And they try to really emulate his style in this title sequence. And that was like the one flag to me, like when I was watching it and again, I had no idea what this movie was about, but I'm like, Oh, this is a pretty cool title sequence. Very kind of Hitchcock esque. And then, you know, 10 minutes into the movie, when it all clicked and immediately when when they established that that they know who the murder is and and you're going to be following this guy who's basically an idiot like when it all sort of comes together pretty quickly it's like okay i think this movie is way more intelligent than i gave it credit for this is not blue streak and uh and it <laughs> just 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 the title sequence alone sets that apart from other spoof movies that i mean you know, spoofs have been made for decades at this point. And I think we don't even really see them these days because I think the those like mm-hmm. date movie and disaster movies really sort of to- torpedoed that part of the genre. Just I don't think anyone wants to see any more new spoof movies because they're so bad. But there are a lot of really popular ones. And I think this one, and you probably think the same, Ian, I won't speak for you, but I think this is uh, not, uh, does not get the credit that it deserves. And I'm going to see if I can turn more people onto this. Excellent. Nice. So good recommendation. Thank you. Yeah, it is definitely underrated. Like most people don't even remember it. Remember I didn't even know that about it came it. out or knew about it in the first mm-hmm. place. Yeah. So. Well, and it Check seems it out, the, the intro, <clears throat> haven't seen the film, hadn't heard of it. Uh, like these others we're talking about, but having the soul bass inspired opening credits is a small, but efficient way of demonstrating that like the the filmmakers have done their homework it's the difference between like a spoof movie that is just making reference and that's the joke versus one that's actually engaging with the genre like black dynamite does that part of what makes black dynamite great is it's not just making fun of black exploitation it's exploring that genre and what makes it tick and similarly yeah it's this detail and especially when you're dealing with hitchcock who's a filmmaker that Everyone knows in a vague sense, but unless you actually watch his films, a lot of the details are lost on you. This is a way of signifying, yeah, we've seen those films. We know what we're doing here. Um, and almost as like if you go in knowing it's like a Hitchcock spoof. I mean, it's, it resembles the setup of North by Northwest pretty strongly. Um, it kind of almost puts you at ease. It's like, OK, like they know what they're doing. And that's nice. For sure. Yeah, they there's definitely a degree of respect for those kinds of movies that you can see shining through when you're watching this. And it, it is just a, a simple kind of low budget comedy movie, but you can tell that there was really a, uh, a little bit of heart and passion when writing it, which you do not get from a lot of comedies, but it helps you appreciate it that much more, especially mm-hmm. if you're, like you said, familiar with these kinds of movies. Well, I'm glad you liked it, Greg. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I think and you dig it, Daniel. Probably. I, I mean, you know, the only other comparable Hitchcock spoof I'm aware of from around, it's a little earlier, but around this era is the Danny DeVito classic, Throw Mama from the Train. 
Oh yeah. And I like that. Another film Comedy a lot, Central so. classic. Yeah, exactly. Uh so I'm down for, you know, just like a night of uh uh light Hitchcock spoofs from the the eighties and nineties. I think I could Excellent. have a good time with that. I we've got two. I'm sure there's a third floating around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Comedy Central back in the nineties. This is where I watched Kids in the Hall. That's how I know them. Though Mom from the Train. I I've watched Comedy Central and in years and years. I don't know what they show these days, but they had some pretty good stuff that a twelve year old could absorb. Nice. Well, I'm glad you didn't watch the wrong man instead, because I don't know that one. <laughs> well, I um I actually had good. like a, I had a setup that you kind of uh, spoiled for me with your intro two minutes ago. I was gonna start talking about the wrong man. <laughs> Oh, that was the wrong movie and then he'd be like wait greg did you watch the i told you we've talked about this before it's a different movie <laughs> but then i'm like oh it's all right i'll cut bait on this so but what matters start. is that you had the bit planned and that shows <laughs> exactly. a commitment to the it's show the intention yeah. i had it there and it, it's okay it's okay i did do that once in our film club i watched the wrong movie it was exactly the same title i can't remember what the movie was called but somebody had recommended a movie and i watched one of the same title which was the only one i saw on streaming and it was like some kind of period piece like victorian britain show that had was completely boring and i was like why did this get recommended to me and then i found <laughs> out later that was not the right movie that's hysterical so it has happened yeah it could have happened with me because the film you gave me has many. There's other films right. with that title, but I knew because we'd spoken about it before exactly what movie you were talking about. So I couldn't. <laughs> there was no way I could have made that <laughs> stick, but nice. alas. But yeah, All that right. was uh, the wrong guy. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, Greg. Oh, now I got an intro to Dan. you recommend yeah. me? So I uh, recommended a movie called two lane blacktop. And I wish that I had some deep reasoning in recommending it to you. Like, Oh man, Daniel is such a fan of uh, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia that I have to recommend. <laughs> I do really like that movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you've seen it. Uh, or am I glad you've seen it? I don't know. But, uh, um, but yeah, I, I honestly was trying to rack my brain. And every time I try to recommend movies for Daniel, it's like, dang, the guy's seen so much good stuff. I really have to dig deep and try to think of something that he hasn't seen. And that was one that I watched maybe like a year ago. And I thought that was an interesting movie, a little off a beat. Uh, you know, maybe that's one that Daniel might be able to uh, glean something more than what I was able to get from it. Because, you know, you you obviously analyze and a lot of films read deeply into them uh and it would be i thought like an interesting discussion point if you hadn't seen it um i had nothing to do with cars or um you know cannonball run kind of films nothing to do with that just like oh the interesting movie i watched i wonder if daniel has seen it and will like it recommend well it was <clears throat> i think it was well selected for me because as like early 70s film it's very much a piece with the then burgeoning new Hollywood movement in its uh, Monty Hellman, the director prior been like a Roger Corman guy and had made some offbeat Westerns in the sixties, like ride the whirlwind and uh, the shooting with uh, both the Jack Nicholson. And he was emerging as this counterculture filmmaker. And this is probably his other big movie. Cause after this, it's like eventually he makes silent night, deadly night part three. Um, so 
this was kind of the peak of him working within the system. And it comes in 1971 on the heels of movies like Easy Rider. And there's a lot of affinity with that movie specifically. Both are these very, um, in some ways, traditional like genre movies of like the open road and these sort of uh, thinly sketched characters on their open road that are motivated, but they're also not strictly going anywhere. And Tulane Blacktop's even more stripped down than something like Easy Rider. The characters don't have names. We have the driver, the mechanic, and girl are our main three. And eventually we meet a character who drives a, a Pontiac GTO. So he's named GTO. So that's how character names work in this. They are driving around and entering into drag races, but they're not really motivated by anything specifically. They're not like going after a specific race or a specific goal or trying to make enough money to get a better car because they're driving like a 1955 um, beat up, like rusted down car. So which is another interesting thing, like in this era of emerging vehicle movies and this very hip new cinema this film, the main characters drive a car that's from the 50s that's trapped in the past and looks like it. Um, and in many ways, it's a film that's like defiant for what not just an audience in general wants, but even a specifically a counterculture audience would want from a movie like this. And I'm going to have to compare it to Easy Rider a lot because they're so similar and they're so putting them in comparison is so vividly communicates how weird this film is and specifically of all the things beyond just the stripped down characters, beyond the the old car, beyond the lack of dialogue, what really stands out is the lack of music. You know, the the road movie, especially when it's in a car or a motorcycle or any kind of mechanical vehicle, invites music because of this thing of like, you know, listening to the radio, whether that's literally what's happening in the scene or that's the feeling that the the film is evoking. Music is such a key part of the open road film. In Easy Rider, it's essential. Even though the character, the, the film is very loosely plotted, it's got this soundtrack of contemporary rock and folk music that gives it a certain vibrancy and a certain drive. Even if it's just the characters going down these country roads in America, when you've got CCR playing in the background, it does still feel like there's a lot of motivation. It's still really exciting. This film has almost none of that. There's a little bit of music, but usually it's uh, faint and in the background and overwhelmed by other sounds or it's not really like the sort of iconic anthem songs. You know, you don't have an equivalent of um, Steppenwolf opening Easy Rider. And the moment, <clears throat> excuse me, that I think really communicates that, it's music related, but it's also, again, denying the audience what they want. The one, one of the big songs we get in the movie is Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Only it's not played on the soundtrack. It's not listened to in the car radio. It's not performed by the band. The main characters are in like a, a diner and the girl walks up to, I think she's going to play like an arcade, like a pinball game or something. She's just going off to do this small thing. And she starts singing Satisfaction to herself off key. And the fact that it's also the song Satisfaction seems almost a deliberate <laughs> snubbing of the audience and what they want. Like, oh, you want this big music moment? We'll give you your satisfaction that it's, a character who can't sing. And to add to the irony, the two main characters in the film are played by James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, who is the drummer of the Beach Boys and also could <laughs> really? sing. Neither of them had ever acted before and I don't think ever acted again. Neither of them really can act. So you're thinking like, well, they must be cast in the movie because 
musically that no none of their songs are featured in the film they don't do any music or performance at all and <laughs> i i keep gravitating to this moment just i'm not even sure if i like it to be honest because on some level i i, I admire the audacity of the film for having coming on the heels of easy rider and certainly the producers were thinking this can be our easy rider we got you know characters the open road driving music that's the film they want there's something really audacious and admirable about the filmmakers defiantly not giving them that uh, and almost rubbing their noses in it by having the one character who performs, who sings a song is the only one who can't sing. Uh, and it's the big song in the movie and we don't actually get to hear it, you know, playing in its full vibrancy. So there's something admirable about that. But there is also a part of me that's like, come on, Monty, what are you thinking? Like, you can't be like, you can't be surprised when the film turns around and it's not getting supported by the studio and no one's going to see it. Um, so that's the moment I'm choosing and I'm mostly choosing it. One again, like, I think it's it's uh, just deliberately really bold. And I do think there, whatever interpretation you bring to that as a choice, that provocation is interesting because it's such a specific choice to have the only main of the three main characters the only one who isn't a singer is the one who sings a song and in a movie that is defiantly denying you a soundtrack the big soundtrack number is just sung casually by a character who's performing a task the same way you might be humming tunes while you're like scrubbing dishes um so that's my moment well i'm really disappointed here you didn't like the movie um no, I didn't kidding. say I didn't like it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's cool. You had a lot to say, which is uh, which is awesome. Yeah, the um, uh, yeah, you clearly uh, read more deeply into it than uh, than I think I did at the time. I I got. Well, I had say, to I prep for the show, so I'm like, I got to say something. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember the uh, the uh, Rolling Stone scene, but yeah, it definitely... it's barely a scene. Like she's literally just walking to do something. She's like, I can't get no. Like that's it. Hey, it's a little things that you glean from uh, these kinds of movies, you know. And you're right. Just having James Taylor and was it, is it Dennis Wilson? Yeah, I think he's in it. Yeah, who I think he's the one who I think drowned uh, over in Marina del Rey in California. Um, I think but, so. I know he died relatively young. Mm-hmm. Obviously, after shooting Tulane. Yes. Black. Yes. But uh, what do you think? Do you think this is a movie that Ian is going to enjoy watching or will he will he be pulling his uh, his fingernails out while he while he watches it? I think he'd be a little restless. It's very well, Ian, what do you do? You like Easy Rider? I like it well enough. OK. Um, I mean, maybe like if you settle, I, I, for, I don't think it's a movie that benefits very well from home viewing because it is so aimless and it's so sort of quiet and detached. Like the other moment I was thinking of choosing actually is just the opening credits because they play over imagery of like the open road at night being passed, which is pretty traditional film visual. You can think of as like being evoked in stuff like Terminator two or lost highway where it's just nighttime and it's an empty open road. And you just see the yellow lines of the road, you know, passing by as the car moves forward. And there's an imagery, there's images like that in the beginning of the film, except instead of the camera sort of being almost like in the car looking out or like at the bumper looking on, it's like directly above the road facing directly down. So you're both in the moment and in that space kind of with the car and with the characters, but you're also detached from it and looking from this outsider perspective. 
Um, so it's a film that I think would really benefit from being seen in a theater where you can really just lose yourself in the images because the movie looks amazing. It's really well shot um, and has a great sense of like place and tone. But when you're watching at home and you're being bombarded by distractions um, and it's just not as immersive a screen and sound, it doesn't necessarily have the same pull that it would, I think, in a theater. Um, but it's an interesting film. And uh, while I don't like it as much as like the my favorite new Hollywood movies, I, as someone who really loves that era, I definitely got a lot of interest in just watching it in that context. Well, nice. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, mostly enjoyed it mm -hmm. like yeah i'm glad i saw it one, yeah no it's definitely one that i wanted to recommend to you not like oh he's gonna love this thing but more oh i i wonder what he has to say about it yeah and i mean it's monty hellman his westerns have a similar like they're westerns and they have a plot set up where you can imagine a more traditional like action era with shootouts and and violent conflict and those elements are there but they're very detached and dry and they're more these odysseys through this this american wilderness that are almost these more metaphysical journeys to death like people i think you could talk about these films as like uh, reflecting the ideas of like the innate death drive and the drive towards self-destruction and tulane blacktop is essentially that in the context of the early 70s when the 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 horse in the desert has been replaced with the open roads and the I don't know, 1955 Chevy or whatever the guys are driving. I'm not much of a car guy, so I don't know what's what. But it's not really about any literal plotting so much as it is just settling in this mood of quietness and somberness and watching these characters slowly kind of march toward uh, the end. Um, so, and unlike, which again, I think is similar to Easy Rider, but Easy Rider, the characters while they're they're not deep they're much more distinct like they have names they have personalities where again it's like the mechanic and the driver and we'll, like they're they're played by non-actors and they're actors who aren't horrible or anything but they're not really giving you much in terms of characterization because it's i mean i, I watched an interview with monty hellman afterwards where he said he cast the film by looking at like still photographs and he was saying you know, I don't like to even cast based on film, just what they look like in still images. I'm like, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> but it also, it makes sense when you watch it because it's not really interested in them as personalities or even personality types so much as just as a, uh, a, a conduit for taking us into this, um, into this journey and this tone. So. so this idea of like going against tropes, which is kind of what your moment is playing at, I think that's a fine line. Like mm -hmm. I get it to some point where, you know, you want what you're making to stand out and be unique in some way and breaking tropes or subverting them can do that. But there's also another side where it just comes off as pretentious or curmudgeonly. It's like, <laughs> I ain't doing that. That's stupid. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think, I think filmmakers or, you know, even if it's like a writer doing a novel, I think, if you're too aware of it and it's too obvious that you're trying to buck the trends, it doesn't work. I don't know. That's kind of how I feel about it. Sometimes it makes me mad. That's like, fair. Just respect some of the tropes that you're working in. And if you're completely rejecting it, I don't think it works. I think if you're aware of them and subverting them in specific ways to get what you want out of it. Okay. That, that can usually be, you know, inspired, but 
I think there's a line. Well, and this movie plays in that line because, you know, in part because I'm not entirely sure what the film is saying with that subversion. And I'm not even sure necessarily how deliberate it is, but given the context of when this was made and the producers from, as I understand it, very much expecting an easy rider-esque movie, I do think it was to some extent deliberate. And certainly in retrospective interviews, like Monty Hellman, the director, has spoken about, you know, casting musicians and having them not do any singing and kind of having a sense of humor about that. So what, even if it wasn't at the time, it's certainly how the film has kind of been received since. And I'm not sure then, like, well, what is the film saying with that subversion? Like, is it just subverting for the sake of subverting? Is it doing it because, you know, Monty Hellman is just a, that's just how his his mind works for this countercultural filmmaking sensibility of not wanting to give the audience what they think they want. Um, I do think it contributes to the film's more somber tone that because even though Easy Rider has a certain grimness to it, there's also like this real vibrancy and beauty and excitement. And the fact that like this film doesn't have even that kind of, again, like thinking of it in terms of this death drive, like you're always kind of walking towards this, this, this end point, um, which is not to say like without going into too much spoilers, no one literally dies in the movie. So again, it is more of this abstraction of reflecting on, on a sort of tone of fatalism rather than a literal um, fatalistic story. Um, but on the other hand, you, you do as a viewer, at least I felt like, you know, there's a reason people love that Easy Rider soundtrack. There's a reason why that film, despite being kind of defiantly anti-narrative and anti-commercial cinema, was not only popular at the time, but still endures as a landmark title. Um, and a lot of that is the soundtrack and how, beautifully it's weaved into the picture and there's a reason people like that and you do miss it and i get that frustration i think part of where that comes from is like you know i get not wanting to indulge in, in cliche or do what people have seen before but there are a reason people love the tropes that are reproduced and there's a, a fun to that and you know if you're going to deny them you should have a good reason or you should offer something that if not better is at least different and is worth it on its own. Yeah. And it's debatable if this film does or not. Um, it's certainly interesting, but again, like I'm comparing it to easy rider a lot. I think easy rider is the much better film and I'd much rather watch it again, but there's also value in this, this uh, weird little offshoot of it. And I do kind of like it being so different and also so similar. I'm glad that they both exist and can kind of be put in tandem but as a as an audience experience, it, <laughs> it I can uh, absolutely understand why it's frustrating. I won't pretend like I wasn't. Even if I I did get a little bit of a chuckle out of the Rolling Stones in particular, it's kind of like, hey, it's finally a banger on the soundtrack, sort of. <laughs> well, that's a lot better than anything I would have had to say about the movie. Well, again, you weren't watching it for the podcast. <laughs> I had to put my thinking cap on. That's true. Um, and I also don't know diddly about cars, so I couldn't fall back on just like automobile discussion. Um, no, that makes two of us. And yeah, you know, I don't know about you, but boy, do I get tired of seeing people going around. Oh, man, I just put in a new Hemi and some. Hey, Greg, what kind of tires you got on your car? Like, hell if I know. Rubber, <laughs> rubber ones. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
I, I know absolutely nothing about cars, and I'm tired of pretending like this is some sort of attack at my masculinity. I just, it, I don't care about it. I don't care about it. Well, to that end, it took me a while to like be a hundred percent sure that the characters, these, the car the characters drive in is old. I'm watching. I'm like, now it says on the back of the Blu-ray, 1955 Chevy. Uh, I was like, okay, great. So I was right. But at the beginning, I'm like. Is it just me or is like that shape is much more round and reminiscent of like 50s cars as I associate them? It's looking pretty rusty. It wasn't until um, GTO shows up, Warren Oates driving a contemporary Pontiac that I'm like, oh, well, then contemporary. I'm like, OK, yes, I was right that that car is very much an old beat up uh, kind of busted down machine. But I'm yeah. so ignorant when it comes to cars that i'm like i think that's what it is but i can't be sure because <laughs> i'm kind of stupid on such matters so yeah uh I interesting film my, though i had to have my mom help me put coolant in my car that that tells you how how much <laughs> about cars uh, that's bad greg <laughs> i know well what are you gonna do hey man it's it's all good i'm not judging you um, although Everyone I guess else listening is though, maybe I will judge you depending on what you have to say about the film I recommended you because while I was generous to Ian and not giving him a piece of misery, I thought, well, there's someone else I can recommend a movie to and there's nothing that says I can't recommend him something miserable. Uh, so I went with Sid and Nancy, which Ian watched because I brought up on the show and also hated. And part of why I recommended this was honestly just kind of selfishly, like when you see a movie that you really love and you're just kind of obsessed with and want to share with people. And you're kind of more interested in your own thoughts on it and spreading it than you are thinking through if they'll actually like it. But the other factor in motivating it as a motivation was, you know, Greg, you talked about the difficulty in recommending us movies sometimes, but I think that goes both ways because you've seen certainly like the classic Hollywood pantheon, the kind of films that I talked about in my recent AFI video, you've seen, well, you've seen all the films in the AFI lists and you've seen like most of the other really heavy hitter classics. I'm sure there are some blind spots in there like we all have. But in terms of like popular mainstream prestige American movies, you, you've you got that covered. Um, so I was trying to think of like something that's similarly serious and well-made and, you know, strong performances, but isn't necessarily uh, as as well-known, a little bit more niche and maybe could sneak in there. And eventually settling on Sid and Nancy is like, well, you know, it's it's certainly well regarded, but it's uh, it's a British film. So it's not in the American pantheon, as it were. And it's uh, certainly a little more grim and, and mean that it's not necessarily the kind of film that's going to show up in a magic of movies classics montage. So I thought this might be a good bet for something that is unfamiliar to you. And turns out you hadn't seen it. So I thought, great, let's just roll the dice on Sid and Nancy. Um, and now we'll find out if uh, I rolled two sixes or a pair of snake eyes. Well, <laughs> I'm going to revisit something that I just discussed a few minutes ago. But I know I said that I try not to read Letterboxd or IMDb. But um, this one really got the better of me. And I did see that uh, before I watched it, I saw, Daniel, you have, I think, four and a half stars for Sid and Nancy. And Ian has, I think, just a flat one star for the movie. And I'm like, holy moly. Okay, we are, <laughs> we're in for it. But I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I watched it. And then I try to think, okay, well, for the podcast, you know, putting your thinking cap on, I tried to think, okay, what could I talk about? 
And I'm going to be honest with you. I watched it again. <laughs> so I watched it twice because, and the first time, um, and not to crib anything from what you had to say about it, Ian, but I was like, I, I, I am also one of those guys. Like if, if we're like getting really into drugs and everything like that, it, it really can, a movie can really lose me. Um, and especially if I feel like it, it might use drugs as a crutch, which I don't think it, Sid and Nancy did too much, but it was the second time around. I really started to kind of, uh, pick up some of the, uh, intricacies of, of the movie. And, um, I think I did. I, can you, can you believe that? Like I watched Sid and Nancy twice. For this <laughs> podcast, and uh, More and, than either of us have watched it Yeah, for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like uh, some things really did stick out more. I mean, yeah, they might've been more obvious things, but, um, but uh yeah like just maybe once he's you know sometimes when you know a movie like from beginning to end and you can see where it's going from point a to point b you can uh you can absorb more of what's in the middle on your on your uh subsequent viewings and uh yeah there, there were drug use and addiction is uh pretty heavy in the movie but um but also i was able to to take away more of, of the relationship and exactly what they really mean to each other. One scene that, and I, I don't know if I'm, I, I think there are two things I'm going to, we're going to cheat and pick two things and I'll try to combine them. So I don't take up the whole podcast, but um, there were two things that really kind of stuck out to me more the second time around. And the first one was uh, it's not when Sid and Nancy initially meet each other, but they see each other in a bar uh, a few minutes into the film and, and they're talking and, and Sid asked Nancy if he can score some drugs for him. Uh, now, I don't think heroin was uh, was on the docket at the time, but uh, she he gives her money and then she leaves. And then he's waiting outside the bar for her drinking for hours, presumably for hours. And then it's raining and he's still sitting there. And I think it's Johnny Rotten who comes out and finally brings him back into the bar. And like, is he waiting for the drugs? Is he waiting for Nancy? Uh, both. But maybe but it kind of uh gives you an idea of of where sid vicious head might be at or or maybe even where it might not be at you, you never really know and by the way i should also preface i know nothing about the sex pistols i knew nothing before i, I knew who they were i had this little weird project i had when i was commuting to work a long long time ago i was in the car for like an hour and a half each way I found Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. And I'm like, I'm just going to go through this. And <laughs> I don't like punk rock is not my thing, but I, I kind of enjoyed, uh, uh, never mind the Bullocks. So I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. That's as much as I know about the sex pistols. But, um, there was another scene too, where they go to visit this other, uh, this other punk rock icon. Can't remember who it was. And, um, and then you see them on top of this roof and they're like playing with some cap guns. And then people from the hotel are trying to tell them to come down. Uh, people are trying to tell them you got to get ready for a tour because Sid Vicious is about to go on this American tour. And you can tell that they're just genuinely happy together, even though they're starting to uh, kind of spiral into their uh, abuse of your, their substance abuse. But it, and I think they even use um, they use some images from that scene in like the promotional material. And it's right after that is when Sid Vicious goes off to tour in the United States. They're separated. 
And that is one of the catalysts for like the band breaking up and, and them devolving even further into drug use. And, and it's really this hinge in the movie, at least from what I could tell where, where things took a turn, like for both of the characters. And it's like the final scene where, where you can see them both really enjoying each other. And, um, And yeah, it's, it is certainly an interesting movie. I think my first watch, I, I gave it three stars. I kind of like meet you in the middle. Like, yeah, I didn't love it. Um, there, there's some things I appreciate, but yeah, it did kind of put me off a bit. But the second time I think I was able to get a little more, more, uh, meat out of it. Okay. Um, but Well, yeah, I'm it's. learning a lesson here that I probably should stop recommending this movie to people. I will not heed it, however. I will keep recommending it. <laughs> no, there's certainly things you can take from it. Um, and, and it is it is uh, very British and it's really offbeat comedy that you really have to you really have to read between the lines to get. Um, I saw that the director, Alex Cox, is also he made the movie Repo Man, which mm -hmm. I watched for the first time a couple years ago, which I know some people love Repo Man. I know some people who are way into that movie. I had a, a, a coworker one time. He's like, I could memorize the whole movie. I, I could write the whole thing out for you. I know every line of the movie. And I'm like, dang. Hmm. So I had to watch it. And again, another really just sort of or very offbeat comedy uh not one i would recommend to everybody by any means but um yeah not to say that sid nancy is more <laughs> accessible but it's it, oh it is i think relatively yeah, relative I, to repo man sid and nancy is more okay accessible yes to repo man. yeah who would access yeah i'm still i'm still trying to figure that out but yeah i i kind of sit between you guys i, I can see how off-putting it is but yeah I, <laughs> there are also some things that i uh I'm like, on the second time around, I'm like, okay, I'm picking this up a little more. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, I I can certainly see that it's it's a heavy film, and I think part of why it's so heavy is related to the second scene you talked about where you see them enjoying each other. And I think that does make it worse because it isn't just these heroin addicts spiraling into self-destruction into their eventual real life deaths and the the not just their deaths but the horrific circumstances of nancy's death specifically but it's the fact that in a scene like the scene you mentioned you get why they're attracted to each other and why they love each other and that does make it worse it does make it like sting more it makes you feel more gross about it because it's not as simple as just oh they were bad for each other and they they and and they shouldn't have been involved which they were but then also recognizing why it's hard to pull themselves out of it because they also complemented each other in a very sick and destructive way um and i think cox and the actors really do a really good job zeroing in on that very dark and and uncomfortable place excuse me uncomfortable place where you know you can understand them even though you're kind of horrified and repelled by the material. Yeah, for sure. Ian, what did you think about Sid and Nancy? I mean, yeah, it's pretty well known on here that yeah, it did not work for me. I just don't really care to see characters spiral like that. It's just not really my thing. Yeah, it's it is it is hard to watch, especially when you know it does take up a, a pretty fair chunk of the movie. And, yeah, um, but there's also so much beautiful stuff in there, man. There is. Yeah. 
that my way performance which is very much styled after the real music video and then it mm-hmm. sort of like the reality starts to bleed out and it becomes this more fantastical scene of it's the two of them on the staircase oh man just sh- scene stop show stopping musical number uh for a pretty nasty song to begin with it's it's beautiful the shot of them by, by the trash can and the falling debris and that uh that tragic music starts playing in which is the same music that'll play at the end as they're very much leading towards death it's so good yeah um, but like also what the movie did to me though is i think it really ruined heroin for me because like now i absolutely don't want to take it sure like now <laughs> i don't want to do it at all <laughs> It's and, a real buzzkill of a movie in that regard. Yeah, and like, who knows how I might have enjoyed it earlier mm-hmm, <laughs> before mm-hmm. I saw the movie. But now it's like, you know, something. I think I'm out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm. I think I'm a little old to start at this point. That's fair. I, you know, I just. I mean, who knows? Who knows which way uh, the wind's going to blow? I mean, we we don't know what the future holds. But as I of learned, now, I am out for heroin. I learned a very valuable lesson as a kid who watched a lot of A&E biographies on overweight comedians who died on speedballs. It's like, okay, you chose potato chips. No, no hard drugs for you. You made your choice, (laughs) Daniel. So that's it. I'll stick with my ruffles. Thank you. Yeah. No one ever OD'd on those. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I mean, I'm glad you got more out of it than Ian. And I know you had made it a mission at one point to watch uh, all the Criterion spines, so this does help towards really? the goal. Well, yeah, like uh, not not to uh, that seems know, daunting too hard, but you know, you were talking in your in your uh, video, Daniel, that you mentioned earlier. You were talking about like people going after lists, and uh, you know, I'm one of those guys, and like especially when I started getting into uh, film watching. Yeah, okay, well, AFI lists, and then the best picture list, and then this, and. And, you know, I, I like the Criterion collection as much as anybody. But, um, yeah, like, they, they've been around for a while. And, yeah, there are some very questionable picks. Like, they have they have Armageddon. Like, okay. But um, I remember a while back just, okay, what's number one? Grand Illusion. Okay, well, let's just start ticking them down. And and uh, I think the one I skipped was Solo, the 120 Days of Sodom, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's one I'm just going to leave where it is. But I think Sid and Nancy might have been one of the one of the lowest ones that I hadn't seen, but um, yeah, there's, there's like, what are they up to like 1100? I don't know if yeah. I'm going to get through these, but, but you know, at least the earlier ones, it's uh, you know, interesting to see like what they chose at the time. Well, it's more about the adventure than the destination. You don't need to finish the list, but seeing them, you know, you stumble across some real gems like Sid exactly. and Nancy, which also like you mentioned, not knowing anything about punk rock. I think that's also a strength of the movie is that, it doesn't seem to like punk rock either. Like even mm-hmm. the soundtrack, it's an original score composed by a bunch of different people, including um, Joe Strummer of The Clash, which is also feels almost like heretical, like the other big punk rock band do some of the score for the movie. But it's not really a punk score. It has a much more like 80s sound, not in a bad way, but there is like more more like uh, electronic elements. And it's more, it's not so as aggressive and bombastic and like angry. It's more slow and somber and dreary uh which is also probably why the movie has a tough audience it's immersed in this very punk aesthetic and culture but then in addition to it being a story that's not really that concerned about the music and is more about the people and these people who destroyed themselves 
but also the soundtrack is not giving you the punk rock bangers you're maybe wanting. It's giving you this funeral dirge. No, there's only like a, a couple of scenes with sex pistols and it's not about the sex pistols. No, um, not at all. Like the, like the best really... musical performance scene too is my way, which was a Sid vicious solo. Uh, which is the cover. Yeah. Of <laughs> Frank Sinatra song. So, and it's also the song that plays in the end credits of Goodfellas. And uh, also sad to know, I didn't know this until I started reading about it, but yeah, like you think that uh, just watching the movie, like, oh, Sid Vicious, he 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 lived a life. Wow, he he did a lot in his time. No, he was only like 21 when he died, like barely drinking age in the United States. I'm like, dang. Well, that's the other thing with like some of the images of them, like when they're holed up in that horrible apartment, like wrapped in blankets, just watching TV with like these gross looking TV dinners. And just in terms of even demystifying, because there is like a bizarre romanticism to musicians, especially dying young because of, you know, like drug and alcohol abuse and the way the film, like, again, it's probably what makes it hard to watch, but it really cuts against that myth and imagery. Even in the, a lot of the concert scenes too, Sid sounds awful. I mean, the man could barely play to begin with. So that's, you know, strike one. But he's so strung out that he can barely stand. He doesn't know the words. He, he's, you know, half the time he's not even playing his bass. Like, it's so, it's such an attack on the on the mythic status of the band and the icon and the self-destructive, the romanticism that comes with self-destruction. Mm -hmm. So. Even if no one likes it but me, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't dislike it, especially after the second time. It's not really a movie that I want to sit down and watch with my kids, at least not yet. That's fair. But we're still getting through Tarantino stuff, but um, yeah, maybe maybe after. Cool. But, um, yeah, speaking of heroin, I think that um, that's a good segue into uh, <laughs> my pick for Ian, which was <laughs> a movie called Make Way for Tomorrow. Make Way for Heroin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a hundred years old everyone's all strung out but um no it's uh now this is a movie and uh again i i saw this a while ago and it really kind of touched me and it's a movie that i've been trying to turn more people on to uh, as best i can uh so that's really the only reason that i uh, wanted to recommend it to ian and uh so yeah hopefully hopefully you got something out of it uh so What'd you think? Okay. Make way for tomorrow. Well, I, I kind of got the sense that you recommended it to me because I like Tokyo story. Cause this seems to be a pretty big influence on that. Um, oh, I didn't make know you like Tokyo story. Okay. <clears throat> well, that's good to know too. There we go. Uh, yeah. So this one is about, it's basically about an older couple that gets kicked out of their house and from the bank because banks are evil and mean, especially in the thirties. And, um, and so they end up splitting up and going to live with uh, some of their kids. They've got five kids and the kids are like, don't really want to have them there. But I mean, they're the kid. When I say kids, they're adults. They're just their children. Um, but they're, you know, trying to keep trying to pass them off to the other one and, and so on. So. My phone is ringing. Sorry. <laughs> I thought for a second, I'm like, oh, no, did I drop out again? 
No, that's me. It's the parents um, that Ian's trying to shuffle off to his siblings. Like, <laughs> I have a podcast to record. Could be. I'm on a movie podcast. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I really, really like this one, Greg. Oh, great. It's, this is. It surprised me with how um. I, I want to say sentimental, but when I say that, I don't mean it like an overly saccharine, but it is a sentimental movie. And it's also just kind of uh, realistic <laughs> in the way that it approaches relationships and just life in general. And it's very serious in the way that it deals with like life lessons and relationships between families and things like that. Um, and it took me by surprise just how honest it was i suppose um and so especially for a movie coming from like the 30s that kind of just seems like it would be it, it kind of fits in with um you know all those kind of movies back then i always think of screwball comedies when i think of this this age and this is definitely not that it's definitely much more serious drama and about relationships with parents and their children older parents and their adult children um and so the crux of the movie is that because they're they're not in their house anymore, <laughs> this really funny moment where they're telling the children, this isn't my moment, but I'm just going to mention it. And um, they're telling their children that they've got kicked out of the house. And they're like, okay, well, how long is the, they're like, how long do you have until you're out? And like, they gave us some time. They gave us six months. They're like, okay, good. That gives, that gives us some time to figure things out. They're like, so when, when will the six months be up? Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that. I like that part a lot. They got lots of like little humor moments that really that really stand out. Um, but anyway, they end up getting split up, and so the mom goes to to the house of I can't remember the actor's name, Mitchell Thomas Mitchell. Yep, that sounds right. The guy from uh, Stagecoach, a Wonderful Life, and and then the dad goes with one of the daughters, and so they're like in different cities. Um. And it turns out that that ends up being kind of the emotional part of the movie is the fact that not only are the parents like dealing with their children, but the fact that they have to live separately ends up being a pretty big part because they, this is a couple that's been married for 50 years and now they have to live separately. Um, and you really don't understand that until there's a moment where the daughter-in-law kind of runs this bridge club she's she teaches bridge and so she has a bunch of people over and they're playing bridge one night and they kind of the daughter-in-law really doesn't want the mother around because she's distracting and um and embarrassing in some sense um and so she eventually gets her out to a movie but she comes back before the bridge club is done and then she ends up getting a phone call from her husband who's at the daughter's place and they have this phone conversation. But of course, because they're old, she's talking really loud. And so it's really distracting to the bridge club and the entire bridge club ends up like pausing and listening to this conversation, but she's not really realizing that they're listening and she's cause her back is against them. And, and there's a kind of like a fun little moment where she's talking about, Oh yeah, they got the bridge club over. Oh yeah. There's some wonderful people here. And you kind of see all these people like, Oh, okay. That's nice. And you kind of see them nodding their heads and, but they end up getting caught into her conversation and then event. And you do too, because there's, it ends up being a really touching phone conversation. And she, at first it's just kind of, you know, 
small talk back and forth and she's kind of being bossy and giving him instructions on don't go out if it's raining and and so on and so forth and then she just kind of says well you know i really miss you bart and soon we'll be together for always and she starts saying these really like sentimental sweet things and just it's so how good it is to hear his voice and then they start talking about how much the phone call is costing them which in the modern day and age we don't think about long distance phone calls that much anymore but it was a big deal back then because it, it was expensive um and it really gets the sense of sadness of them missing each other and you it really comes through which is not really where i thought the movie was going with this um because it kind of just seemed like the mother and father were just going to be props for a story that the adult children were going to be revolving around. But at this point I realized, no, this is going to be very central centralized on these, this two, this couple, these two people. Um, and I think this that's to the strength of the movie because eventually you get to a point where they're reunited later on. And that's really great stuff. Um, because like I've mentioned this on the show before, but most marriages in movies are like portrayed as trouble in trouble or like, you know, dysfunctional marriages. But I like when movies have strong marriages at their core and you can see why that is. And this is a great example of that. Um, like so, yeah, Sid and great. Nancy, strong, like and central. Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> But kind of my my moment is almost kind of going with the Greggs, right? Like the idea of you see why why these people mean so much for, to each other. And anyway, great recommendation, Greg. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I, I actually saw this before I saw Tokyo Story. Um, I think it probably might be the off, opposite with like film fans. Maybe they like Tokyo Story, then it gets them turned on to this. Um, not to compare. I don't want to be like, the one's better than the other. I think I actually prefer Make Way for Tomorrow. Um, like you said, you mentioned the the ending. Like that whole third act is is really really good stuff. Like you said, um, it's kind of reminiscent in a way of of uh, Sunrise, a song of T humans, just like as they go through town together, and and then like that that last shot where where they split up. Not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but bah, not it's not every day that a movie really kind of tugs at your heartstrings like that, especially a movie even today. Like how many movies are are featuring like a, a very elderly couple as its prime as its main characters and you follow them around and you see their relationship and you, like it's just <laughs> you you can barely count with one hand it, it just seems seems like a very unique premise for a movie especially one to come out uh in that time and uh yeah it it's one that really kind of hit me in the feels uh and you don't you don't get that very much at least i don't yeah it's it, a it's it's a really strong movie it's interesting you mentioned this is kind of an aside but it's relevant i think associating this era with screwball comedies because the same year of this movie leo mccary also directed the screwball comedy the awful truth and he won best Great. director for that movie um which also kind of goes to show like this isn't really a funny movie but it has these moments of humor like it does definitely have he has that background for it as well. Um, and I do think the Tokyo story comparison is relevant if for no other reason, less so than saying one's better than the other, but for distinguishing them. Because when we talked about Tokyo story, we talked about Ozu's thing of like drama being 
so profoundly felt, but so under the surface and so unspoken. This is not that. It is a Hollywood melodrama. And that's not meant in a derogatory way, but the the heart string tugging is much more apparent and much more on uh, directly in front of you. And it's, it's, you know, it's a tear jerker. And in, I mean, jerking in the most violent sense, you can have that word. Cause it's not like the single, you know, tear down the, tr the cheek. It wants you to sob, I think. Um, and Definitely. it really goes for that. And it and really uh, uh, makes no bones about that being the primary goal. And it's also, I think a good example, cause like the term weepy, sometimes gets thrown around in a derogatory way about like classic Hollywood films and melodramas, you know, that they're, uh, they're cloying, that their appeals to sentimentality and emotion reflect a lack of emotional truth because they're so aggressively going for it. And that can be true, but I think this film is a really good example of a, of a film in that style that uses it. Uh, I don't want to just say effectively, but is coming at it from a very honest place. And so, as as maybe overt as the efforts to to make you weep are, they don't feel disingenuous and they don't feel out of place. They feel authentic and honest to the story being told. Um, it's been a while now since I've seen this, but I remember also having being quite stirred and and affected by it. I'd like to revisit it actually. Well, you do have the Blu-ray as you've shown us. I do. It's right here. It's uh, you know, it's got. <laughs> It's got this nice, it's got this great artwork. It's really nice. Uh, will you be adding this to your collection, Ian? I don't know. We'd have to give it some time. We'll see how, <laughs> how long it sticks with me. I just watched it yesterday. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, when you know, you know. That's true. Exactly. And we um, do have a flash sale coming up, you know, in the next few days, a couple of weeks, I think. We're due. It's true. Uh, like I need to spend any more money. <laughs> And also because I, I do order directly from Criterion, it takes forever to get here because we're in Canada. Oh, but man. I'm just going to look up the... I can't remember the actress's name. Beulah um, Bondi? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, she's... At first, you, you don't really get much from her, but I think this phone after this phone call, she really... like she's a very, It's a very strong performance. Mm -hmm. Especially like the hotel scenes um, where she's at the bar with her husband, I think. She's putting in some some strong uh, acting there. Well, and the, the, the bridge scene is interesting, too, because it is a good, vivid demonstration of the intrusion on the kids' lives, um, which I think we're sympathetic to. Like, we identify with the characters. But there is this quality, and this scene ends up being kind of nice in a way in the sense that, like, for one, they compliment the the people at the at the table. So everyone likes to hear about how, how nice and great they are, but there is, I think the film does enough to get you to understand the frustration of the kids mm -hmm. and their struggles with it, because as much as it's uh, we're sympathetic to them. And ultimately I think we feel like they should be treated better. The kids aren't monsters either. The film rides that line, I think pretty well. Um, and to your point, I really like that you point out how essential it is. This not just that they are, being displaced from their home and they have to intrude on their kids and they kind of know they're being a burden in some ways or are thinking that of themselves but it is the separation from each other and how profoundly that would be for a couple that's been together that long that it, it goes beyond just loving the other person it's like you are dependent on that person and i don't mean that in like a, a literal way but like it's 
it's you can't even imagine your life without them there because they are there with you every day and have been for most of your life yeah. you know like even thinking about how easy it is to get conditioned in into a relationship that's consistent and every day after only like a couple of years versus decades um it does a good job of articulating how profound that absence would be yeah which was a surprise i wasn't sure i didn't really realize the movie was going there and i'm glad it did and that's what separates it from tokyo story quite a bit too right because tokyo story is not necessarily focusing on that it's focusing more on the relationships with the children but Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, a good recommendation greg yeah i'm due for a rewatch for both of those nice all right, so we got one more recommendation left, and that was me to Dan. Um, yeah, so I gave you 2015's Mustang, uh, which was recommended to me through our film club by uh, Michael. And yeah, so I'm curious what you thought of it. I was surprised you hadn't seen it, first of all, so I'm glad, uh, glad you hadn't. Yeah, it was a good find. I liked it a lot. Um I found it also just like so absorbing. Like I was kind of, we mentioned off mic, I watched it off Tubi and I was kind of surprised when like, I was thinking like, it feels like we've gotten more ads than normal. And I check, it's like, Oh, it's cause there's 10 minutes left. <laughs> like it really, <laughs> I was so absorbed and, and sucked into the story. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with the film, it's set in uh more or less contemporary Turkey. It doesn't specify exactly when it's set, but it's the, uh, the nebulous now. Um, and it's this, uh, this group of sisters who are all between the ages of say around 10 to 16, like preteen slash teenage girls who are in the care of their grandmother and uncle who have very traditional conservative ideas about, uh, gender and how women should behave and act in society and how they should relate to boys. And after they're caught being scandalous with boys, which amounts to playing in at the beach in the water and pretty, transparently harmless ways uh the the uncle starts really cracking down on their freedoms the the home starts being more they start being very literally locked in the home eventually bars on window and stuff and the other more accelerated thing is the from eldest to youngest the kids start slowly and surely being married off to men who are in some cases not strictly old but in some cases very much older than the the girls they're marrying who are functionally children um and it's it's kind of a delicate balance where the film is both dealing with some really heavy themes and a real real darkness to it there's even some implied violence even that we don't really see but it's kind of hinted at in places um that's quite upsetting if you dwell on it but at the same time there's also this core uh sisterhood with these kids like where you really feel the strength of their relationship as sisters and how much they love each other and how just like effortlessly sisterly they are with each other and the moment i'm choosing really speaks to that it's pretty early in the film where the group decide to break out of the house to go see a football match and it's like the whole plan they have to do of like planning out their escape because they can't how are they going to go in the day without being seen? And can they go through this window or that? And there's a whole, it's very much like a prison break movie with somewhat lower stakes, uh, which ends up being actually really effective 
foreshadowing and set up for a much later scene of escape that's a much more fraught and intense scene but this one has the the fun of the planning and the executing of the plan but with the lightness of like that teenage escapism of going to see a show together um and my favorite moment within this section is where they have to cr- like go across to the other side of these things and there's like this tiny little like essentially tunnel to crawl through i don't know what it a, like a well of some sort i don't know and uh it, they got the music's kind of swelling and it's very exciting and it's like again that driving beat you have in like a prison escape movie and the second girl starts to go in and she gets stuck and immediately i was like struck because i was i watched it with brooke and as they were getting to that i was saying well this is where i'd get screwed because there's no way i'm fitting through that uh and then sure enough so for her to get stuck i'm like oh right on (laughs) we're not so different you and i um (laughs) but then immediately like start teasing her saying like you couldn't get through because you're fat ass and they start fighting each other in that very like natural way that sisters fight while still being swept up in we're still trying to leave and get to this thing then followed by them shortly missing the bus and then turning on each other for that and then eventually finding another way there. And I love this for, uh, I think it really encapsulates the tone of the film in general and the sort of mix of, of seriousness and drama, but with affection and, and, and heart and warmth. And I think it so perfectly speaks to um, the sisterly bonds that really unite these girls and how, effortlessly you really buy into it and feel that and this ends up being as the narration later says the last kind of time we were all together or close to it and this being kind of the last like hurrah of freedom and as much as the football game itself and them cheering and the excitement of that is the more overt demonstration of that this more casual bickering is in its own way just as heartwarming i thought it was uh uh quite beautiful and the film as a whole, I, I really, really enjoyed. So really uh, well recommended and appreciated. Excellent. <laughs> Glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it will show up in my top five for patrons at the end of the month for those of nice. you who watch those. <laughs> it's um, It's been a while since I've seen it, but it, it really stuck with me for a lot of the same reasons you said, right? The, the relationship between the sisters is really strong and hurts a little bit more once things start happening with them right and so like you said this is kind of their last time they're together and so when that starts falling apart you really feel it as an audience member that's for Mm -hmm. sure um yeah and this whole struggle to maintain their own um, agency is really the heart of the movie um yeah so it's a really good movie and greg you haven't had a chance to see this one hey no not yet but um, i'm putting it near the top of my list it's really did you know good. did you know much about it or no I've heard of it but I I haven't I don't know anything about it now yeah, yeah like uh, until sure Michael had mentioned until Michael had recommended it to me I didn't know anything about this movie like and it was only 2015 so it's only like nine years ago but I don't remember hearing any buzz about it or anything at that point so I want to say it was the I think it was the French submission for the best foreign language film that year, which is also the complexities of that category. Cause it's like set in Turkey, Turkish cast. The director is Turkish, but raised in France and the funding was French. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other thing. And that I might also be why like, and this is just speculation, but like certain international films can struggle because in terms of like the national push behind it, it's, 
not as simplistic or as straightforward. So, um, but this film is really good. It, it's also like, it's really well shot. It's got really great performances. Like you really buy those kids fully and completely. Um, and really like there's a degree of restraint I really appreciated because it hints at some pretty awful stuff, but it's so just implied and suggested in really simple visual language that one is just really effective and strong filmmaking but two also means you're able to broach these dark subjects without being uh exploitative or mm -hmm. um or making something that's like too upsetting that it can't be watched by by certain audiences um yeah i i quite enjoyed it and this as much as like the more overt freedom of the enjoys of the football game are part of what you miss when they uh, the sisters start being separated. It's also the the sort of lighthearted bickering. You miss that just as much. Um, I will say, I have to bring this up before I forget. Like the one thing that's, it's like it's the nitpick of nitpicks, but it did pull me out of the movie briefly. Um, so the score of the film was done by Warren Ellis, and you can definitely hear his like style is very like, an almost like western melancholy and like a lot of strings and like guitar and 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 whatnot. But there's a moment early on, it's when they are kind of first being um, put under like more strict care and they're like they're making some food and then they're wearing like the more uh, uh, covering clothes and having to hide their themselves. Uh, and they're playing this music and uh, this sort of melancholy little tune. And the second I heard it, I'm like, that's from the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which Warren <laughs> Ellis co-composed the score for. And sure enough, it's the exact same piece and they play it throughout the scene a lot of it and they play it again later and it's a great piece and i get why they used it and it totally works but i listen to that score a lot so i so associate it with that one movie that i was a little bit like mm, i'm kind of pulled out but that is frustrating uh, I've, it, I've had that before <laughs> it's a total nitpick and the other thing is like Unlike, say, uh, to use an obvious example, like the Seven Samurai theme showing up in Isle of Dogs, where it's a very deliberate, like, evoking that movie. This isn't that. It's supposed to blend. You're not supposed to think about, I don't think anyway, Jesse no. James. But I did. <laughs> um, But not really a big deal. Still a great movie. Uh, Still really would highly recommend. Um, Yeah. That was beautiful. I'm like that with the uh, with the theme from Sunshine because that keeps popping up. People treat, keep using that one over and over again. Like I think one of the Wonder Woman movies used it, yeah, and I it's such a right. good it's such a good piece of music that it works wherever it's going to be used. But I'm like, no, this is Sunshine's music. Mm -hmm. Stop mm -hmm. it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's more traditional soundtrack, but the opening of or early on in Nyad, you have uh, Annette Bening kind of singing. Um, uh, sound of silence to herself where the instrumentation plays and it's like you can't use that song unless it's a comedic context like the graduate owns it yeah that might not be legally true but it is functionally true you cannot play that song unless it's like arrested development doing it and it's hilarious but <laughs> if you're trying to be like a sincere dramatic thing and you play that i'm out um this is a lot less extreme than that because it's score it's not as obvious and Assassination of Jesse James is not a big enough movie that most people would notice, even if they have seen it. But I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, honestly, like, I really was, um, I don't have too much to say about it otherwise, because it's just, it's a really good film. It tells its story really well. 
uh, again, like it flew by for me. I got sucked into the the characters and story. The the main, it's not necessarily immediately clear, but the youngest uh, kid ends up being the protagonist. She's awesome. That performer is great, but also like her uh, urge to rebel and just to stir shit is so immediately like identifiable. Um, yeah, that that really drew me to the movie too. Yeah, and even like the the stuff with like the the guy who ends up teaching her to drive and like that who was involved in the scene I mentioned him becoming kind of a supporting character and his role in it was also really touching. Um, I mean, it, the film obviously bears a lot of similarity if you know the material to Sofia Coppola's, the version uh, suicides, which I was wondering is why you recommended this to me. Cause that's my favorite Sofia Coppola film. Nope. Did um, not make that connection at all. Honestly, <laughs> well, it worked out brilliantly. But uh, the difference being is that film, you know, A, it's told from like kind of a third party observer. And part of the point is that we're really distant from the Lisbon girls. This we're not. We're right in that family. And we we get them, I think, really. Uh, we identify them really directly and really strongly. And this film is less about sort of staying in that mood of sadness and despair. And is more about the, the specific characters and their uh desire for their own agency and autonomy um and despite being a very sad movie in a lot of ways it's a lot less depressing than uh it maybe sounds on paper yeah i agree with that too excellent well i'm glad you liked it me too sweet so that's that's our film club there we go. it was a productive session yeah sorry i couldn't contribute more to mustang but that's okay by the time I'm back, I will have almost certainly watched it. Sweet. Maybe we'll recommend it for our unofficial, like our, our own film club, and then you'll have to watch it. Yeah, then I will be bamboozled into seeing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, there we go. Those were our recommendations for each other. I think mm-hmm. they turned out mostly pretty good. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even the films that were less liked still produced discussion. So can't complain about that and i don't think anything i don't think anyone hated anything they were forced to watch well i think i'm the winner here because i really enjoyed both the movies you guys gave me and you guys enjoyed (laughs) the movies i gave you so it's true it's true so so ian won that's that and that's what matters when in friendships is who wins (laughs) that's right just like marriages it's not about who's happy it's about who wins and who loses it's all about who's above the other person at any given moment and Dan managed to keep uh, Greg off the drugs, the hard drugs. So that's yeah, good. that's true. That's For the true. moment. For the moment. Oh, I, I can recommend you more films about people succumbing to drugs and abuse. Yeah, but then what if I don't like them, though? What if it t- just turns me off again? That's that's my problem. Look, Reefer Madness, it'll set you straight. <laughs> You're like, no way. I'm going to play piano like a crazy person and fly out a window. I better not one toke over the line. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> Um, Man, well, Greg, thanks for coming back. Oh no, thank you. I know it's sometimes hard to to squeeze me in because my schedule is a, a little hectic at times, but always happy to jump on and talk to you guys. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Thank yeah. you. All right. Well, um, do we have anything we need to share? Well, the last uh, episode, I was like, I hope the AFI video is out when this episode right. goes up, and it was. So AFI video is still up and uh, the script for the next video is in development and uh, actually continues a lot of the ideas from that AFI video and expands on them. So 
if you liked that and you want more, more is coming. If you haven't seen it, you should, because it'll expand on those ideas. If you saw it and you didn't like it, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do something sillier eventually. The AFI one, it really did like hit me because you were talking about people in the list, like I mentioned earlier. And yep, almost all that applied to me. Yep. All of us, I think. I think part of why I ended up going down the list road is in part meeting you guys when I was young. And it's like, well, that's what they did. I should make a list too. Um, <laughs> and it actually probably helped out too. Cause then like having a group of friends that I could talk about the films with, I wasn't just going through the list. So even if it was like, wow, I saw this and it was really amazing. Or even if it was like, why is this in the list? It's a piece of crap. Like there's a sort of a social component to it as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so you should we Greg and I recommend that vi Dan's video to everybody. Yes, that's, that's a recommendation. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sweet. Okay, well again, Greg, thanks for coming on. Thank you. See you next time. You bet. Uh, I've been Ian. I'm Daniel. And that's it for us. We're out. Mm -hmm.